G'day, I'm Rob. And I'm Dave. And you're listening to the Doctor Who Show's hot takes on Series 11 of Doctor Who. Tonight, it's Kablam! Hello, Dave. Hello, Rob. Kablam! Yeah, the first Doctor Who title with an exclamation mark in it. Unless you count the Virgin New Adventure novel Sky Pirates. I was going to say Sky Pirates, yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, as always, Dave, we start off with a word of the week. Well, at least when we remember to do it. Um, what's your word of the week? My word of the week is Dragonfire. Dragonfire. Oh, okay. My word of the week is reprieve. Okay. <laughs> I reckon I can work that one out, actually. You probably can. You probably can. But we'll save it till the end of the episode. Now, speaking of, I think this needs to be said up front, Dave and you might get sick of me saying this, another week without Chibnall writing and another enjoyable episode, well, at least for me. It was for me as well. Uh, there's a lot to really unpack in this episode in terms of my opinion, but fundamentally, I enjoyed watching it a lot. I think it is certainly of the non-historicals. Mm -hmm. It is certainly the best of the run. Is it as good as those historicals? I'll decide at the end of the podcast. Alrighty. I've got to say, when the first long trailer for this went out, and by that I mean not the little teaser that we get at the end of the previous episode, but during the week, longer trailers drop online. And when I saw that one, I thought, aha, I know what they're doing here, because there was a case a few years ago, a real-life case, um, of someone buying a handbag at Walmart, and they opened it up, and inside was a handwritten note uh, in Chinese. And it was like, you know, help us, we're, you know, we're, we're suffering here, things are not so good in the factory, blah, 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 blah. I thought, aha, that's what they're doing here. They're sort of conflating a, uh, an Amazon-like place with, you know, a, a sweatshop-type factory. <laughs> and, and that's kind of the direction they're going. And in the end, it, re it really wasn't that, but I'm thinking that's maybe where the idea for the episode came from. It could be, but you've put the, your, your finger there, Rob, Right on, I think, what is my main point for this episode. And what I think is the main selling point and the main strength of Kablam as an episode is that I genuinely was engaged throughout trying to work out what the plot was and what the twists would be and where the story was going to take me. And I didn't know uh, for some time what was going on. I had lots of options going through my head about what it could be and none of them turned out to be correct and that's a really good thing. That's a good episode. Oh, it, it really was. And that dovetails nicely with one of my notes here. Um, we've been talking about episodes that don't have proper enemies or enemies that are a real threat. And in this episode, we had an enemy who was a real threat. You know, hurrah! This was a genuinely unhinged guy. And there was some really nice misdirection going on. Initially, I thought, was Maddox up to something? Was Slade up to something? Had the robots gone rogue? You know, was it a Robots of Death type situation? No, it was just this nutter of a factory worker. <laughs> yeah, I went through uh, some sort of alien intelligence or evil bad guy had taken over the system to do something. And then I had maybe the system itself had done something. Then I had, yeah, somebody else was using the robots for something. I, I had another one where it was going to be, you know, it was, it was going to be that actually the, 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 bo the big boss of the company and it was, was, was doing it deliberately and by doing this he increased profits and it was going to be a mm -hmm. anti-corporatist polemic. Lots of things went through my mind, but you're right, in the end, 
the bad guy was a bad guy and a really well played bad guy, a bad guy whose whose intent was not understandable because he was unhinged, mm. but within the logic of an unhinged mind, understandable. Yeah, that that's precisely it. And, you know, aside from a Robots of Death vibe that I mentioned a moment ago, at times the robots in this, who I thought might have been evil, reminded me a bit of when the Ood go evil and their eyes change colour and there's lots of them around, you know. And, and I kept having these little callbacks to past Doctor Who stories like that. You know, the, the, the delivery in the TARDIS was a bit greater show in the galaxy. And I guess even the way the robots looked, they looked a bit like the conductor robot from Greater Show in the Galaxy. And, and it felt in many ways like a, an episode from the RTD era. And this just felt so steeped in Doctor Who to me. It's not a perfect 10 out of 10. I don't want people to think I'm about to go crazy and give it 10 out of 10. But it felt so steeped in Doctor Who and like the writer knew what he was doing. And I was like, oh, hell, that was a really good, enjoyable episode. Yeah, the writer certainly knew his Doctor Who and there were little nods and winks to things that have worked in previous stories that I think were added either deliberately as a little nod and a wink to us as fans or because it's deep in the marrow of the author and they just came out naturally. Mm. I've also written down here that it was a very greatest show in the galaxy vibe, uh, both from the start of the episode being a probe coming to deliver a message or a package into the TARDIS, as you said, the design of the robots, then that wonderful, gorgeous shot of the moonscape with the planet in the background. Mm, yes. That was, that was very McCoy era, very gal- greatest show in the galaxy. Uh, yeah, there was a lot there was a lot to like in this. And you're right, let's talk about that robot design because it did a really good job of looking like how a robot delivery man practically and realistically would look, whilst also with just a couple of changes and a couple of changes in angle and lighting and, and the eyes suddenly being incredibly sinister. Really, really effective design. Yeah, I, I really like the design there. I really liked the not just the uh, the physical designs in the story, but also the uh, the CGI designs. I mean, the way that large warehouse looked, the way the robot army looked, the way a lot of it looked was totally believable to me, you know, when they were using CGI. And that that's really something for television CGI. I, I thought that as well. In previous episodes, we have been very, very strong on the location filming looking exquisite and beautiful. Whether it was what we had last week in Demons of the Punjab, going right back to that South African uh, filming in um, the Ghost Monument. Mm. They, 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 that's been a consistent theme, less so with the interiors. On this one, this was, this, this was the one where I suddenly thought, these interiors look good. Even that entrance hall that they go through the first time, and then they have the walking tour as they're sort of taken down... And that looked vast, and it looked big, and it looked pretty, and there was there was depth to it. Not so much, in, I'm saying in field, but someone had taken the time to do all these little details on that, and it mm. was really effective. And so this was a really good interior, probably. The, well, I think the first really beautiful interior we've had this series to match the exteriors. Yeah, look, the only the only way I faulted it was while the foyer looked big and impressive and, and should be because that's the foyer of the company, they went into that room to have that scan. It was the scan where they detected the Doctor had two hearts. That room seemed very 
big and 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 the the ceiling seemed very high and it seemed an awfully big room just to have that like medical test going on in other Eh, I'm not sure a room would actually look like that, but everything else to me looked fantastic. It, it did. The, the fault that I had, and, and this is being very picky, but it was a lack of consistency in terms of scale. Mm. There were moments where you had a CGI shot of hundreds of workers in a vast warehouse, or you had a CGI shot of thousands of packages going down conveyor belts, and then you'd have just two characters in a small room, or two characters on a conveyor belt, or two characters in a storage area. And even though the storage area was big, there wasn't that sense of you know, 10,000 people or, or, or robots. And I guess if there are 10,000 people, there must therefore be 90,000 robots. Mm. You know, there, there wasn't that consistent sense of it. Yeah. But again, as you say, you're nitpicking. I was nitpicking too. You know, on the whole, I thought this looked just fantastic. Yeah, and, and felt the same as well. Just going back to that robot design for a moment, the way that it... I mean, it actually mentioned, it actually referenced robophobia. Mm. And that, that, that chilling feeling of something that's not quite human looking at you and, and, and not trusting it. And yeah, it, it really tapped into that. I, I was, as a cynical bloke in his 30s who's been watching Doctor Who his entire life and thinks he knows all the tricks they're about to throw at us, <laughs> I was a little bit creeped out by that. And if you can creep me out watching Doctor Who now, you've done a good job. Yeah, yeah, precisely. You know what else, Dave? I think this episode did a very, very, very Doctor Who thing. Can you think of what I'm thinking of? I know that's a very broad question. <laughs> it is, and it's too broad. Go on, tell me. It took an everyday item and made it scary. This is of the whole course. troll doll thing from Terror of the Ordons and other stories. It took bubble wrap and made it scary. It did. No, that is a really good point. And it was even foreshadowed very subtly, but right at the start where the Doctor gets her package and the instinct is to get bubble wrap and pop it deep down inside of us. We all want to burst bubble wrap. <laughs> yeah, we sure do. Ah, no, very good. Shall we talk about the cast? Sure, sure. Now, last week we started with the support cast. Uh, will we continue that trend or will we turn it on its head? How do you want to do it? Well, let's make a couple of points about the regular cast, because this was a very large cast. It was. I think easily the largest we've had so far this season. I'm just going to count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I've got at least eight people I want to talk about. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> I've got a positive and a negative about the regular cast. Mm. The positive is they all got something to do, and they all did it well. So, you know, ticks. I, I can't complain about that. It, it, it was... It was probably the best use we've had of the four regulars because they did do what we talked about in previous weeks, Rob. They split them up and let them all have their own little bits of the plot that all came together. Very traditional Doctor Who. I noticed that too. Uh, on the other hand, that means that they don't get a lot to do. I think Graham got some lovely moments, but it wasn't you know, a strong Graham story. Ryan got a few little things. And <sighs> once again, though... We got to learn a bit more about Ryan, what he used to do in his job, his attitude to his work. He got moments where he was talking about his dyspraxia and how that affects his life. Yaz was there. <laughs> Again, there were, I didn't... Okay, she had one moment where she you know, put somebody in a 
grip, grippling rescue. You know, you know what I mean? Where the arm yes. behind, yeah, yeah, that thing. I don't know what the proper term is. She got that moment where I thought, oh, that's nice. She's a police officer. But where was the equivalent for Yaz of what Ryan got to do in this story? It wasn't there. And once again, I think she is the Nissa of this team. She's there. She's fine. She doesn't know much about telebiogenesis. <laughs> but, but you know, you know, this is somebody who came from Traken and that's her backstory. Yaz is somebody who was a police officer in Sheffield and that's it. Yeah. Look, I'll start then with my Yaz notes. I've put not a standout Yaz episode. I feel she came a little more out of the shadows here in places. I said she got to employ some police hand-to-hand tactics, uh, yeah. which you've already noted. Uh, but on the whole, yes, out of the, the companions, she was again the third wheel, quite literally. Ryan, I think increasingly he is the audience identification figure because I think it's primarily a young audience and I think the way he acts is, is for them to identify with. Um, although I tend to identify more with Graham these days, given my <laughs> advanced years. Um, his dyspraxia was remembered too. And I thought, gosh, we haven't mentioned that for a few weeks. Then I think, well, if we mention it every episode, I'd probably be bitching about that and saying, do we really have to harp on about it every episode? So, <laughs> Yeah, no, no. I thought this was a nice time to bring it back and bring it back in a really good way. Uh, Graham, as always, some great lines. I really feel that he's the backbone of this team. And I'm going to say something controversial, Dave. Is he Ian? Is he Ian? Y- yes, because he brings a worldliness to the TARDIS crew that we're really not used to having. Mm. We're used to the Doctor being universal. You know, He's not worldly, he's universal, he's bigger than that. But usually the Doctor's companions are very young, very innocent, and they need to be shown the universe and they need to grow in their travelling with the Doctor. Graham is growing with in his travelling with the Doctor. He's seeing new horizons and he's learning things about himself. But he is also already a very worldly person. He knows how humans interact with each other. He knows how to make people feel good. And, and that, again, was seen in the conversation he had here with Leo, where he says, you know, I can tell that you're into Kira. And he jokes about it. And it's that real sort of mature person giving some helpful advice and friendly advice to a younger person and being a bit of a mentor. And we don't see that in Companions very often. Ian is one of the other few examples. I, I think that the comparison really is there. Yeah, I'm, I'm really starting to see it more and more. Uh, which just leaves the Doctor. And I think there were one or two quirky lines this episode that didn't land. But generally, she felt Doctorish to me. It wasn't a standout performance by any means, but it was solid. And it wasn't manic. And I kind of liked it. She got some great stuff. I enjoyed her involvement with Kablam 1.0. I thought that was really good. I enjoyed her realising what was going on. She didn't get to really drive the plot again, if I was being really hypercritical, but she did get to solve the plot at the end, and Mm. she was the one who put it all together. So that is, I think, a step up for Jodie Whittaker. I think it was a better performance for her here, uh, dare I say, though, because she had better dialogue to deliver. Mm, I think you might be right. <laughs> yeah, and it's not something we're setting out to do here, Rob, as, as we've discussed offline and indeed on the podcast, to, to sort of become the podcast that sticks a few nails into Chris Chibnall's coffin every week. Mm. And I'm not saying it with that intent. I'm simply making an observation that 
in this episode, the Doctor was better written, and that, I think, allowed Jodie to give a better performance. I, I think that's that's simply an observation I've made with no uh, malice and certainly no intent. Yeah, look, I before we get to the support cast, I just want to take a, a moment to, to talk a bit about this, and I think it's been a massive mistake for Chibnall to have written so many episodes in the first half of the series. The ratings figures are going down week on week, which ratings figures do in any series. Yeah. They, they, they do tend to go down. So that, I'm not saying that that's a problem with the series, but I just wonder if they'd go, have gone down as much or if people would have a certain view of the series like they do than if Chibnall had mixed in a few more of these writers earlier on. Like, of course, write your opening episode. It's your doctor. It's, it's your thing. It's your baby. Of course, set it all up. Maybe even write the second one, but don't come back until maybe the last one at that point. Let the other guys come in, and girls, and and have a go. And I think the series might have been viewed a bit differently if he'd got out of the way by episode two or three than what's actually happened. I think that I agree with you, but for different reasons. Okay. I think the problem was less that Chibnall wrote them all. I think he's entitled to do them all and set the scene up. It's less that, and it's more that there was a certain sameness to the first few episodes. And that, I think, is where the disadvantage came in. And I think if an episode like this had been earlier in the mix, it would have felt a lot less samey than it did after the first five. Oh, absolutely. And and this one could have been mixed in a lot earlier. Uh, they could have been in the TARDIS after their first adventure, and the... Um the, the Kablam Man appears in the TARDIS and off they go on the adventure. It doesn't need much setup. Indeed, this actually would have been a very good episode too because it actually is very evenly balanced with the cast, as we said. You could have seen that background story of uh, Ryan. You could have seen that um, mentor character of Graham. Yaz would have been Yaz. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. But yeah, I think actually would have been a very nice... Episode 1, we got to know the Doctor. Episode 2, let's see the crew being a crew. This would have been quite good in that. But, look, it's good here too. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, in, in a 10-episode in a series, there's nowhere to hide. The episodes come up pretty quickly anyway. I, I just have an issue with the way Chibnall... I do have an issue with the way he's written more than half the series. I think, in part, that's what delayed the series, because he was having to write more than half of it. And if he used more writers, we'd actually be able to get a series out every year. But don't get me started on that. Uh, look, it's a wonderful comment to make with hindsight, I guess. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll see what he does in the next series. Although with the way people are saying, well, it's going to, you know, be more than a year until the next series because, well, because he has to go and write more than half of it. It sounds like he's going and writing more than half of it. Uh, there's so many rumours about the next series. I don't know what to believe right now and 90% of them probably won't be true anyway. Mm. All right, let's get into the support cast. Uh, probably the smallest part first, Lee Mack as Dan Cooper. Uh, he was fine. Mm -hmm. uh, it was, again, a surprise where he disappeared early, much like they did with the uh, the senior nurse a couple of weeks ago. He was set up as being a likeable and relatable key character, and suddenly he was gone about 20, 10... Well, was it about 10 minutes in? I'd say so, yeah. Um, and unfortunately... That actually was a very clunky part of the episode. The moment he brought out that necklace and did the whole, I have a daughter and she loves me, and this, <laughs> this necklace is going to outlast me, I thought, yeah, and you're probably going to be gone in about five minutes' time, given you've just said that, and he was. 
Yeah, and I'll, I'll have more to say about that later in the episode. For me, I think this was some 1980s stunt casting, to be sure. Like, oh, look, it's Lee Mack, the, the comedian, the guy from all those panel shows, you know, never-ending panel shows from the UK. Yeah, um, and, and in fact, it's funny, because we've just got to say, I don't know what his reputation is in the UK, but I certainly know for me in Australia, I have no idea what Lee Mack is famous for that got him on panel shows. I just know that he's on a lot of panel shows now. Yes. <laughs> That's very true. But I find him quite, you know, quite fun on those panel shows, and I, I quite like him on them. So to see him in this playing a fairly straight role, I was like, okay, I can go with it. It was probably unsurprising that he wasn't a main, main character, but I was still surprised he did get bumped off in the way that he did. No, look, I mean, there'll be lots of talk about how, you know, this is another example of how we shouldn't underrate comedians and their ability to act and everything i think he acted just about well enough to get away with this had he had to carry the plot and been more of a focus i actually think he would have struggled i think he was pretty much at his limit here and that was a wise choice Mm, fair enough uh moving on claudia jesse played kira arlo and i've got to say i quite liked kira and at one stage i thought she'd fit in well with the TARDIS team, I know that's kind of cliche with a lot of Doctor Who episodes. People say, oh, they could be a companion. But in this case, I genuinely felt that. Although it might be damning her with faint praise because I'm kind of comparing her to a Yaz. Like, you know, oh, you know, against Yaz, she's good enough to be a companion. If it was against a Bill or a Rose or a Donna, um, maybe I wouldn't be feeling the same way. But in this TARDIS team, I think Kira Arlo could have almost been a member of it. Oh, I, I think you're being a little bit generous there. Really? Maybe yeah. I just had a crush on her. Yeah, look, maybe. Um, <laughs> I thought the actress did a very good job with the material. I thought she was a very good character for this story. Mm. I don't think she would work outside of this story. And, and indeed, I think that if I were to see more than 50 minutes of her, I'd actually start to find her a little bit wet and a little bit annoying. Uh, she just, again, it was just the right amount here. Uh, so, so sorry, that, that sounded very negative. I thought she gave a really good performance and was a really lovely, sweet character. I'm just disagreeing with you that I think she would work outside of this one setting. Mm. I can see what you're saying. I think it is the sweetness, though. You mentioned her being sweet. I think it's the sweetness is why I think she might fit in with this TARDIS team. Because it, it seems a very sweet place to be. You know, there's not a lot of bitching. It's not the Davo TARDIS team. <laughs> <laughs> or, or or even some of the other TARDIS teams we've had over the years. It seems to be a fairly friendly place. Uh, yeah, look, I, I get where you're coming from. And yeah, it's, it's probably just a, very much a case of personal taste as to whether she landed on the cute and adorable side of your view or, in my case, the uh, nice but perhaps a little bit too wet to be hanging out with too much point of okay. view. That's a personal choice. But, but yeah, uh, really effective and played the role that she needed in this uh, very well. Um, again, did you think she was marked for death fairly early on? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, 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 I kind of thought, I mean, I, and, and I've got to say, I was hoping I was be wrong. Because I, 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 I was really starting to you know, like her and she was sweet. But there was a way that she was written and the way that she was talking that just made me think, okay, you're the one who's going to die so that we can up the stakes at about the 35, 40 minute mark. And she was. Yeah, the whole, you know, I've, I've had one present in my life and it was a little box of chocolates from the company and, oh, it was so nice. It's like, oh, yeah, you're too sweet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, leaves us three people to talk about, Dave. I'll let you pick the next one. We've got Judy Maddox. She was the uh, the people manager. We've yeah, got can, ju- we, can we talk about her? Because sure. I vacillated very much in my views of her. Her opening scenes, I thought she was fantastic. Other scenes, I thought she didn't quite know what she was doing, and it was, it was a little bit awkward and stilted. Then she came back home with a really strong performance, and I love the way that she was showing that real not offence, but a real deep-seated regret that she hadn't done her job and wasn't quite as good as she thought she was. She portrayed that very well. Um, Overall, a a good performance and a good character. I wonder if there was perhaps too strong an attempt at misdirection. Mm -hmm. And the same with the other gentleman whose name escapes me. Uh, the, The guy was Jarvis Slade. Yeah. With Jarvis, there was very obvious misdirection attempted there to the point that the Doctor was herself misdirected. Mm. And then that's fine. That's that's what happens in murder mystery plots. That's that's part of the deal. And it, and it worked out well and the motivations were fine and it was well, well written. Uh, but with her, I wondered if also they were trying for that misdirection just a little bit too hard. And so she just sort of was pushed a bit beyond a naturalistic character for a while there while we were trying to cast a bit of shade on her yeah look i think that could be it i made a note that she was played in that is she or isn't she a baddie sort of way which i was finding a bit confusing at times yeah so if i could just say in jarvis's case he was being played like that but he turned out to be a bit of a dick Mm. so it's so like it's a natural thing whereas they're trying to make her as a genuinely good well-intentioned person looked suspicious as well so it didn't sit as naturally yeah but she did have some good some good scenes at times um i found her speech a bit hard to understand i don't know whether i just wasn't paying full attention or whether she was mumbling or saying things too fast but i i I noticed that and i made a little note of that uh but but on the whole yeah she was she was quite an interesting character java uh slade meanwhile I put the biggest surprise that he wasn't really a nasty guy because he was played up so much in that in that field. So I guess you could say, well, of course he wasn't going to be because they were, you know, highlighting it too much. But uh, at the same time, I thought, oh, how can he not be the nasty guy, you know? But yeah, he was just a dick in the end. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I thought he played that role pretty well. Um, didn't have a lot of screen time, though. No, he didn't. And I think that he would have done better with more material. But it was a very crowded episode and... He was there to be the misdirection character, and he fulfilled that role fine. Absolutely. Which just leaves us with Leo Flanagan, who played Charlie Duffy, the absolute psychopath who wanted to blow people up. Yeah, I thought this was a wonderful performance. I thought it was a wonderful character. Um, maybe I had a bit of a crush on him, the way you had him here. <laughs> I don't know, but um, it's possible. Um, I, I loved it. I just thought it worked really, really well. It was a twist I didn't see coming, but when the twist happened, I looked back and I wasn't sitting there going, huh, that makes no sense. Nor was I sitting there going, yeah, I called it. I was sitting there going, wow, I didn't see that coming, but it makes sense. Mm. You disagree? No, 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 no. I was I was actually thinking of a line and it reminded me of Rosa. I th- At least I think it was Rosa now. No, no, not Rosa. It was the first episode, Woman Who Fell to Earth. Uh, where Graham was saying, you know, if you need anything, you just ask a bus driver. And then later in the episode, when they needed to know something, he asked some bus drivers and they 
did a callback. Oh, if you need anything, just ask a bus driver. And here it was like, no one pays any attention to the janitors. And then later in the episode, when he was revealed to be the psychopath, it was like, ah, oh, it's the janitors because no one was paying attention. And it just reminded me of that a bit. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it, 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 it was. And it, it was that, not cliche, but the trope of the postal worker. Yes. Yes. And it, and, and it worked really well. Can we can we dive down? I think we'll come back to his performance, but can we dive down now into the actual plot? Mm. Do you think there was a message here, Rob? I thought it was getting very preachy at points. And in fact, I started to tune out when it got a bit preachy in places, like when he was raving on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Because I thought, oh, here we go with the preachy bit. I don't think I can be bothered listening. Um, it was probably one of the few negatives of the episode for me. <laughs> okay, so let me say then, Rob, is it interesting that they put the preachy bit into the mouth of the unhinged character? Because there were moments there where I was sort of doing my notes and going, gee, this is like I kind of get where this is all coming from, but it's a little bit Luddite for me and I'm not sure I'm comfortable. But then I've gone, hang on, no, no, no. This is the unhinged guy mm. giving the Luddite speech. And it's a classic case of somebody who has identified a social problem, but come up with the wrong solution. Yes. So, and he's then contrasted later on with the other workers. So he is identifying that, yes, in a world of automation and 50% unemployment, that is a problem society has to deal with blowing up the technology and, and killing people in doing it is not the solution. The solution is to find new enterprises and new industries and, and, and all of that sort of thing. And, and so I, I, I thought the preachiness was handled quite well because of that. Now that I look at it through that sort of um, perspective, I think, okay, I think I could watch it again and not be as turned off. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I was starting to be turned off just like you were. But I came back because of that that reasoning, and I thought it did actually end with with balance. And I was worried when I saw the trailer for this that it just was going to be a a very dull and very obvious anti big company polemic takedown with a very preachy message, mm. which I'm I'm not a fan of. I think that you know every big company is not actually a big company. It's thousands of workers with jobs and livelihoods mm-hmm. and so i'm very cynical about that maybe that's just my personal views coming in and i was very pleasantly surprised that it wasn't i thought it treated the material really well yeah no look more more power to you on that uh for me with charlie i thought he was just a sweet lad for so much of the episode um so he really sold it well um and so did the writer of course who was writing him no complaints at all about Charlie. Uh, and it was, again, just great to see a villain who was actually a bit villainous and wanting to do some nasty stuff. Yeah, and not a villain who suddenly changed character at the last moment. Throughout the episode, as you said, he was a very endearing, very convincing, shy, uncertain, nervous, um, you know, lonely, that sort of a character. mm and when he became the villain, it wasn't a case of, you know, the mask comes off or the metaphorical mask comes off and, ha, you didn't see through my cunning disguise or I was this. Or... It was still a nervous social misfit who doesn't know how he fits in and has thus made really bad decisions and got himself into a really bad place. It, it is your 
dare I say, school shooter. Yeah. Yeah, good one. And and that, that was why. He was villainous, but consistent in his character. And that's the mark of a really good writer. And I, I want to take that moment to really praise the way that that character did work and the way that the writer did do this, whether it's the Leo character's arc, whether it's the way that I was continually surprised by the twists, that the writing really made this and for it to be mixed in with some beautiful set location as well. Mm. I, I thought, yeah, it, it all came together really, really well. Yeah, no, well, really well said. Uh, onto the Chibnall era death count. <coughs> 12 has become 15, Dave, with the deaths of Dan, Charlie and Kira. And all memorable and effective deaths that all moved the plot along in a particular and important way. Yeah, not carnage for the sake of it. Um, or gratuitous, it was just, yeah, as you say, move the plot along. Yeah, Lee Mack dying showed us that there is something sinister going on. Kira really raised the stakes and made it very personal, and Leo's was the resolution to the plot. Yeah, and and of course, Kira, I think, might have just tipped Charlie over the edge a bit too. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Shall we go to the sports desk? Let's go. Okay, so here we are at the Sports Desk, where each week we look at a foul of the week, a play of the week, and an MVP of the week. Dave, what shall we start with this week? Uh, Well, let's look at a play of the week. Um, Look, Rob, I'll give you mine. Okay. It was the moment where Charlie revealed what was going on. He gave his motivation. It all made sense. There was a genuine hesitation and a a listening to the doctor's speech about, you know, what happened to Kira could happen to others and how do you feel? You could see him in his mind, but no, he's unhinged and he goes for it. And then building to that look that he gave back as the robots were exploding around him of just bafflement. Mm. I thought that was a really wonderful, perfectly pitched moment. I really enjoyed it. Okay. My play of the week, and I've touched on this, is taking aspects from a real-life company like Amazon, including, you know, the way their delivery mechanisms have evolved over time. You know, they've now got drones and things like that, and I'm sure in the future they'll have other things. Taking that sort of stuff and mixing it in with that story about the cry for help in the Walmart handbags, um, just taking an everyday object like bubble wrap and, and wrapping it all together, no pun intended, to deliver, you know, a story that I think would have been quite comfortable in the RTD era, which also had some classic era vibes going on too. I think it was just that general mix of, of, of themes and, and such that just really made this for me. Very cool. Mm. What was your foul of the week this week, Rob? We've touched on this too, but I'm going to talk about it more now. Um, a few things were signaled really poorly in the story. The whole thing about, oh, this metal necklace will outlive me. It's like, oh, you're toast. <laughs> you know, I, I just don't see the point in having a line like that. It would be far more shocking if he'd just gone and died, you know. And, and then there's that there was that other moment. Oh, Yaz, don't go down there. Bad things happen down there. Yep, this dude is doubly toast between the necklace outliving him and the fact he's going to go somewhere where bad things happen. Why not send him off uh, without all this signalling going on? Again, it would be so much more surprising if he was killed off without it. Yeah, I actually agree. I had my moment as being the necklace moment. 
And again, it just it just said to me, "This guy's going to die," and it ruined the surprise. And it was so hammerly done as well. It was a poor moment in an otherwise good script. But it's interesting you you mentioned as well, and I'd forgotten about it. That moment where he takes Yaz's duty. Now Yaz is a police officer, mm. so the idea that she didn't turn around and say, "Well, hang on." There's something mysterious and a possible crime going on down there. Let's go down there together and I will investigate the crime and protect you. Yeah. <laughs> it, it actually is a very poor Yaz moment when you think about it. That a guy says, people who go down there don't come back. I'll go. Okay, bye. Yeah. <laughs> That's very true. So yeah, that, that, that whole shtick around that I think is, is my fail of the week. And look, just on the necklace, we could have just had Yaz find the necklace pick it up, turn it over, and it says, to dad from your loving daughter, Sharon, or whatever. And then at the end of the episode, she says, I think we should go and give this to Sharon. It, it didn't need Lee Mack to tell the whole story at first no, to, I, to I still agree. get the payoff in the end. I agree. I think we're very in sync on that. Okay, which just leaves MVP. I'll go first here, Dave. Yes. My MVP is Pete McTie. Do I get a snap? Uh, no, but no? It's, okay. a very, it's a very worthy one. <laughs> Okay, I, I think Pete showed a great understanding of what makes a Doctor Who story. And although my foul of the week is directly related to writing, uh, when we talk about, you know, the necklace and the signalling and all that sort of stuff, I still think he did far and away enough here beyond that to deliver one of the better stories of the series so far. And for me right now, I'm hoping he gets a Series 12 gig straight away. I would agree with all of that. Okay. Uh, however, I'm giving my MVP this week to Leo Flanagan, who played Charlie. Very good. Simply because not only was it a really good performance, but it's the performance th- without which this episode wouldn't have worked. No, no, it all hinges on him in the end. It did, and he did it really, really well. He played innocent, not suspecting him, Charlie, right through to unhinged, but still underplaying it, Charlie. So, yeah, he, he he's my pick of the week, and I'm very comfortable with that. Alrighty, let's recap our words of the week. I'll go first with reprieve, because uh, it's probably the most obvious one. Simply, I think this episode again bangs home the idea that this series might be conceptually good under Chibnall. I think he's coming up with ideas and mixing up the stories well. You know, he's placing a historical every few stories, and and all of that's really good. That that that's a showrunner doing his job. But the series is getting bagged by a lot of fans because of his writing. And in this episode, and in, say, the past episode too, I think we got a, a reprieve, and that's my word, because suddenly it's not underperforming, and we see that it's possibly just Chibnall's writing, not his vision, that's been the worst aspect of this series so far. And that's a big thing for me. I, th- I think Chibnall has got a big overall picture, like, oh, we'll have an episode doing this and an episode doing that, and this will make a very interesting series. But I just think he's written too much of it. I keep coming back to that. Fair enough. My word of the week was Dragonfire. Yes. And this is on several levels. This story reminded me of Dragonfire in in a number of ways. One, it was a very Cartmel-esque episode. Mm. Replace Freezer Centre with Delivery Centre. The characters, the way it was working, I thought it was, was actually very Cartmel-esque. Uh, I thought that the visuals reminded me a lot of Dragonfire, that sort of attempt at spectacle, of course, done here with CGI and a far different budget. But mm. again, it, it had a similar sort of feel of a vastness that's being represented by some smaller areas. But it also felt like 
and this is perhaps similar to what you were saying, Rob, I can remember Dragonfire being broadcast and having seen Time and the Rani and Paradise Towers and Delta and the Bannerman, the latter two of which I've learned to appreciate, but certainly at the time, we they did not go down well. And suddenly we got Dragonfire, which was this wonderful, interesting, quirky space adventure. And it was a sort of sense of, no, Doctor Who's coming back. This is good. Mm. This is this is the direction that all all the elements can come together in a, 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 and take us there. And I think that that's the same with Kablam. I'm also perhaps putting a slight word of warning on it in that Dragonfire is also perhaps regarded as being the one everyone likes because it's the good one in a week season. Mm, true. I hope that in five, ten years' time, we don't look back at Kablam and go, look, it's an okay story, but that was kind of the good one in a fairly weak season. I don't think we will, but but maybe we will. Oh, I don't think so. I think the two historicals so far have been strong too, so there's at least three great episodes. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Hmm. All right, let's give our scores out of 10 and some final remarks before we get into some uh, tweets. I started high and then I dipped down a bit as I, I thought about it. But as I've talked about it, I've got to go back up and I've got to give this a nine. And I'm wow. I'm, I'm really I'm genuinely shocked by that, Dave. I, I enjoyed watching this story. I was intrigued. I was engrossed. I was thinking about the plot. I was surprised by the plot. The writing was good. The characters were, were good. There was some eye candy. There were some great visuals. <laughs> yes. You know, as an enjoyable experience. It was it was a nine. Yeah, um, yeah. Wow. Okay, I'm at seven and a half, which at one stage was an eight. Okay. So so we're heading in the same direction. I was thinking around eight at one stage, but I dropped back to seven and a half. Um, and I think that's I feel comfortable there now, uh, because I think this was a really solid episode. I think it was really good. It just on on reflection, I thought, did it do quite enough? Was it big enough to get an eight from me? Maybe not. But I can see why you would give it a nine. And this might be one that when we come to do our end of the series review and we do sort of compare episodes to each other and even out our marks, I don't know, maybe maybe this one will go down as we get stronger and stronger as the season goes on. Mm, we shall see. All right, feedback from Twitter. We've got quite a few this time around, so I'll blaze through them, but feel free to jump in and comment on them, Dave. David Clark at David Clark 14 says, Hiya, Robin. Dave Kablam was a good doctor and the team investigate episode. Love the look of the TARDIS in flight. Oh, gosh, we didn't even talk about the TARDIS. Um, and I thought Jody was brilliant in this one, but all was spot on. Seven out of ten, and being a postman, I could do with a teleport. <laughs> yeah, no, some really good comments there. I, I think it, it really was that sort of episode. Yeah, we finally got, after a week of debate about, was, was something moving in the TARDIS? What was that going on? <laughs> yeah. we, we got very, oh my God, they look so stupid. Yeah. Oh, that was bad. Yeah. I, I actually this... hate the console room even more now. I'm My opinion of it's gone down quite a bit too. Um, I initially I thought, oh, it's colourful. It sort of suits Jodie's Doctor. I see what they're doing, but increasingly I just don't like it. And during the week on Twitter, Trevor Baxendale, one of the the, the great um, NSA writers for Doctor Who, I wish they would make him write more novels. Actually, um, had been saying, did anyone else notice something was moving? I'm like, yeah, we noticed it. We talked about it on the podcast, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I, I think a lot of people this week have been commenting on it that they didn't particularly like it. No, I, I started off really hating the console room and I've 
thought even less of it as the series has gone on. And oh, that shot of the the jelly things moving up and down it was <laughs> it was so bad yeah. oh i hated it yeah i don't like the design at all uh wanda at fishy wanda says love the episode uh short and sweet there from wanda this week that's good Ber- yeah bernard d at bernard jkd i'll await your review i lasted five minutes tonight before i walked out <laughs> jody whittaker now channeling timmy mallet it seems was enough for me I'm not familiar with that reference, I've got to admit. No, me either, but it sounds like Bernard didn't like it. No, maybe he'll give it another try after hearing our quite positive review. Maybe, or maybe he'll turn us off after five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) In which case he won't have got to this moment. Um, Daniel Martinez at Electric Maestro 5 says, Six and a half out of ten. Amusing galaxy-esque robots. And by that, I think he means Greater Show in the Galaxy because he, he posted a picture from Greater Show in the Galaxy. Yep. Um, and some interesting ideas, particularly with the ends justifying the means. But the dialogue early on felt unengaging and slow, only to abruptly ramp up in the last 15 minutes, and I just couldn't follow it. Ha-ha. Hope Series 12 improves from this. Okay, interesting mixed view. And again, this is one of those tweets where... I don't necessarily agree with the view, but I totally get where they're coming from. Mm. And we round out with uh, sometime co-host Mike Sulko at M.A. Sulko. He says, 7 out of 10, the Doctor, Ryan and Yaz all had a lot to do. The plot cruised along nicely with a few solid twists. The entire conveyor sequence looked great, as did much of the production design. When the conveyor sequence is actually more entertaining and better done than a similar sequence in Attack of the Clones... (laughs) <laughs> yes uh, I think that says something about both of those it does and it also says ha- about how far along TV CG has come that yeah, I was mentioning that, earlier that's a really good point mm. alright Dave next time around we have the Witchfinders. this is the Alan Cumming episode and from the brief look we got at it it could be quite fun yeah this is going to be really really interesting for me I am a student of Stuart uh, history in the, the Stuart Kings, particularly James the First and Sixth. I did a subject on the history of witchcraft when I was at university. Mm, did they cross over? Uh, it did, it did, it did. Yeah, so there's definitely some crossover there. Um, I, in fact, was at the uh, Salem Witch Trials Museum about this time last year, I think. Mm. So lots of elements here that could be very, very interesting to me. And I'm also a big fan of the Blackadder episode, The Witch Smell of a Sweevent. <laughs> so yeah I'm, I'm really looking forward to this one I hope it doesn't no I'm just going to leave it there I'm looking forward to this one well it sounds like you're taking lead next week Dave on the episode if you've got all that background but until then I've been Rob and I've been Dave and we'll talk again soon goodbye bye you've been listening to the Doctor Who show the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash thedwshow is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website 
can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who.